Hi, my name is Dan Orlowitz. I'm the football writer at the Japan Times, and you're listening to The Bulla Bulla Show. And it's time for another episode of the Bola Bola Show. It's me, Elvin, and joined on the other line by my two buddies, the deadly striking partnership of Sivan and Bala. So, how have you guys been keeping? And uh, let's go with Bala first. How, how, how have you been, Bala? Uh, thank you, Elvin, for the superb introduction. I'm doing well right now. Uh, currently, everything is uh, so far going well. I'm sure Sivan having the same deadly partnership as well. Sivan, how about you? Yep, things are going smoothly at my end as well. And of course, uh, today's episode, we got a very... It's an interesting episode because um, it's we got a guest all the way from, I believe this is Tokyo, Japan. Uh, welcome on the show, Dan. Uh, hi, guys. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, it is a slightly overcast day in Tokyo. Uh, not that it matters because everyone is... Uh, staying inside but uh hope you guys are all doing well yep. doing great dan welcome on board yeah, yeah welcome on board dan all right dan maybe uh just for a to for an ice breaking session maybe you want to uh tell us a little bit more about yourself okay well my name is, is dan orlowitz i uh have lived in tokyo for over about 13 and a half years now uh, i am the football writer at the Japan Times, which is uh, the country's biggest English language newspaper. Oh, okay. uh, I have followed the J League since uh, 2007, and I've been writing about it uh, for starting with blogs and then eventually a number of websites, uh, including uh, Goal.com, uh, Football Channel, Football Tribe, and a bunch of different publications. Uh, for, for just about as long. And um, yeah, I, I, I sort of spread the gospel about the J League, Japanese football, national teams, and uh, what's happening in uh, the industry. Mm -hmm. Okay. So from judging by Dan's president of our show, I'm sure our listeners right now who haven't probably an idea that today's episode is, is about the J League. Now in case for you guys are unaware, that come 15th of May, it will be the 27th anniversary when the J-League first kicked off all the way back in 1993 between Verdi Kawasaki and Yokohama Marinos in front of a crowd of 59,000. Now, the J-League, of course, it's quite a very unique name back then because uh, pretty much after that, I think quite a lot of countries, uh, South Korea, Qatar, Singapore, Malaysia, India, started to adopt a similar type of name for, by, for branding their league. And of course, uh, it has become one of the most recognizable football leagues, not just in Asia, but also throughout the world. And I would say that it's also coincide with Japan rise on the international football scene. And of course, today, I would also like to see that the league is uh, considered as a football factory with Japanese players playing their trade almost everywhere around the globe. But today's focus is all about what took place in 1993. All right. So, Elwin, uh, you got a question? Yeah, okay. Thank you, Sivan. And uh, okay, so then let's uh, deep dive straight into the J-League. So the J-League was launched uh, back in 1993. What was the domestic football scene in Japan like that before that, Dan? Uh, well, in the pre-J-League period, uh, the, the top league was the JSL, the Japan Soccer League, which was run by the JFA, the, the Japan Football Association. Uh, throughout uh, the, the 50s and 60s and in the 70s, uh, these were uh, company teams. Uh, they, they were corporate entities uh, 
you, you, your car manufacturers, your, your appliance makers, uh, Mitsubishi, Nissan, Mazda, uh, these sorts of companies. And they had club teams for employees to play in, sort of recreational, but a bit more serious than that. And uh, they were popular. I mean, they were supported by company employees, and some of them built uh, fairly uh, strong local followings. Uh, mm-hmm. As Japan struggled and struggled and struggled to build its national team program and to, to get into the World Cup, which was its goal, uh, to, to be taken mm-hmm. seriously in Asia and to get into the World Cup, which was the big brass ring at the time, there started to be discussion about, well, what's the next step? And, and the next step was to build a pro league. Uh, some teams like uh, Verdi Kawasaki, but before then was known as Yomuri SC and was owned by the newspaper and, and media conglomerate. Uh, they started by signing players to pro contracts. Mm-hmm. And uh, over time, other teams started to sign pro players and the J-League was finally formed in the early 90s. Um, the first League Cup was actually held in 1992 as sort of a precursor to the J-League. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. it's, today it's known as the Levine, the Levine Cup. Uh, back then it was, it was known as the Nabisco Cup, uh, still sponsored by the Yamazaki Baking Company, uh, which actually that, that competition has the... Uh, it is the Guinness World Record holder for the, I believe, the longest competition with the same title sponsor, something mm. weird like that. Wow. Okay. Um, so, yeah, like, yeah, so Yamazaki has had this association with, with the J-League for, for now 27 years or so, or 28 years, I should say. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the idea was, the hope was that by, by creating professional clubs, and the and in raising the level of play, uh, this would get Japan into the World Cup, and it nearly worked. Uh, in 1993, you had the agony of Doha, uh, where Japan famously you know, gave up a late goal to uh, Iraq. Uh, I'm always I'm in a game that I think is very famous in Asia and, and sort of has a lot of negative connotations in Japan. I, I think it, it left a deep psychological scar on the nation uh, in a way. And that did set the country back a bit. Uh, in the end, I, I guess I'm getting ahead of myself, but, but this was the period where we thought, well, now's the time to strike. Now's the time for, for football to establish itself in a country that was primarily about baseball and sumo. And uh, the, the J-League was formed, and in those early days, you know, it drew a lot of attention uh, because this was something new. It was something novel. Uh, the fans were into it, and there were a lot of big players coming from Europe and South America uh, to to join these Japanese clubs. Mm, okay, great. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, uh, I have a familiar urban legend in Malaysia, if you would say. Uh, basically, there are, there are stories that Japanese football delegations or the officials uh, in the football side came in 1980s to learn about uh, FAM or Football Association Malaysia Management and they, how they set, set up their organization in terms of the grassroots level, they are set up for the professional leagues, or the time was semi-pro. Uh, I just want to have a clarity on this. Do you have any idea or maybe you can share any truth on this uh, so-called urban legend, which is... Uh, typically at Voice of Malaysia? Uh, I haven't been able to, to find anything firm on it, but that, that doesn't mean, I, I would imagine that a delegation like that actually did take place just because mm-hmm. uh, the J-League, <clears throat> excuse me, I should say uh, the JFA has a great relationship with uh, associate FAs across Asia. Uh, they were very proactive in the 80s in terms of, of learning and in terms of studying and looking at what other associations were doing. Uh, the Malaysian Tigers were invited to compete in the uh, 1985 Kirin Cup, and that was a competition that included Yomuri SC. Uh, it included the Japan national team, as well as, I believe, West Ham United and Santos from Brazil. 
So these days, people know the Kieran Cup as as their friendly games for the national team. Back then, it was a chance uh, for not only to introduce these these top-tier clubs to Japanese fans who normally wouldn't get a chance to see them, but it was a chance for the national team to improve. And Mm -hmm. uh, you can definitely tell that the the JFA held what Malaysia was doing in great esteem because they invited the, the this this youth team well not youth team but basically an under 23 side mm-hmm. uh, to participate and to play against uh, you know some really good international club sides and and the Japanese national team oh okay that's quite quite an interesting uh, story there um Oh, okay, Dan, you were saying that, you know, during the JSL era, the teams were actually company-based teams. Um, what was the fan culture like back then? Because it's, it's a bit unique, I would say, con- considering how, you know, football has developed throughout the whole world, rest of the world, where it's more based on town, communities, and cities. So, yeah, what was like the fan following or fan culture like during the JSL era? Uh, JSL teams were, were supported by some local fans, but also, I mean, the, these were companies with thousands of employees and, and the, the teams were usually based near the company headquarters or, or the, where the factories were, that sort of thing. So they would have pretty loyal followings. And I think the support was more structured, more uh, sort of what you see if you're watching, uh, for example, like like the high school sports and how the, there's like the the call leader, but everyone stands up and, and cheers at exactly the same time, and it's very structured and and I want to say anime like, but of course the real thing came first, and then came anime depictions of it. Uh, but it it was uh, very organized. It, it was almost like you would see in professional baseball with those supporter groups where there is a hierarchy, uh, there is, you know, there are designated bands and designated routers and it's all sort of by the numbers. There wasn't much organic support that, uh, you know, was sort of unique or there wasn't anything really spontaneous. Hmm. Okay, interesting. So, so, I mean, like Bala's case, he used to work with uh, Toyota Motor Company. So which J-League team probably should be associated with? Well, uh, of course, uh, that would be Nagoya Grampus. Okay. Which, uh, was, is still sponsored, I think, owned by Toyota today. Uh, and they were one of the original 10 clubs. Uh, and, and they've had you know, a number of uh, very, very famous uh, players who have gone through, of course, uh, Pixie, uh, Dragon Pixie Stojkovic, who was... Uh, uh, one of the big European players in the mid '90s, and then uh, in the late 2000s, he became their manager and led them to win the title in 2010. Mm, okay, all right, Bala. Now you know which J League team you need to support from going onwards. <laughs> <laughs> I think Nagoya also. I think I've been there before, whereby the TMC was there. I mean, Toyota Motor Corporation, one of the biggest, one of the best factory in the world, is associating with. Mm, so maybe okay. that's why the origin Nagoya started. Okay, talking about them, uh, knowing, knowing their history and their culture, it's a prosperous and a fast developing nation. It's strange that Japan actually took so long to start, uh, to start a professional football program. And uh, knowing their characters with the uh, Kaizens, with the uh, Just in Time, Jidoka, and all these things in the uh, manufacturing side, why, is it takes, why was it slower in terms of the footballing of, uh, progress, if I, may, if I may ask? I think that a lot of it had to do with baseball's dominance. Uh, Baseball was very popular in Japan even before the war. And of course, after the war, during the American occupation and afterwards, I mean, it it, it just was, it it had such a firm hold on the country's media and, you know, on the local populace. You also had, of course, sumo, uh, which the, the the tournament mm-hmm. format was a bit different than it was uh, today. You didn't quite have like this the six uh, tournament annual schedule, but those those were the sports that were considered more you know, Japanese. Uh, mm-hmm. Football was a foreign import in a way. I mean, it it did 
arrive in Japan in the late 19th century, uh, but it, it didn't have the, the status, it didn't have the cachet, and the national team wasn't very good. Uh, Japan didn't win a medal at the Olympics until 1968. So it, it did take time to build up. And I think that especially uh, in that era when you had you know, European football was still reaching Japan in, in these sort of limited ways through, through tape delayed broadcasts and uh, magazines and that sort of thing, uh, people knew that the rest of the world had you know, incredible talent, but they, they weren't seeing that talent in Japan. And that's why in the 70s and the 80s, you start to see uh, more over, more foreign club, more European and South American clubs coming to Japan on tours. Uh, Pele famously toured Japan, I think two or three times. Uh, you had the Continental Cup, which became known as the Toyota Cup, which, which later became the Club World Cup. Uh, was hosted in Japan and in Tokyo for many years. And that was how the population, you know, that was how the populace got to know football and fall in love with it. But then you had an issue of, well, they love European football. Getting them to love Japanese football is another matter. And that's still sort of something that we're wrestling with, with today in that there's a, there is a divide between people who love the domestic game and people who love the international game. Mm, okay. All right. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, so then, uh, now we go back again to the JSL during those amateur days, right? So what what were actually the major challenges for these clubs uh, transforming to a professional side? I think that you know, it's you look at what a professional footballer does. They wake up. They go to the training ground. They train. They work out, they study tape, yeah, they, they do whatever it is they do with the rest of their day. They're on a strict diet. I mean, yep. they have all sorts of trainers and coaches, and that was, that's what a pro team is. Uh, amateur teams, you know, the company teams, you know, these, their employees, they're going to the office, working from nine to five, and then they're training afterwards. So there was no concept of, like really intense physical training. There was no concept of, of nutrition, no, nutrition coaches. Uh, so it took players like Zico, for example, who joined Kashima Antlers back when it was a uh, Sumitomo. And they, they basically brought him over and said, you know, we want you to help us create a professional club. And he did it. He would stay awake at night and catch his teammates trying to escape to, to get cigarettes or to, to get snacks at the convenience store. Mm -hmm. He would get out a ruler and measure the length of the grass and talk to the groundskeeper and get it cut like to the right length. Like th this, he was a one-man army just trying desperately to, to make the club and the team more professional. So Mm. Japan needed examples, and so they, they would send delegations, uh, they, they would form relationships with other FAs, uh, they would bring in uh, foreign coaches uh, and, and managers and to, to show them what needed to be done. And I, I think that Japan as a nation is very good at improving on things. Once, once they learn how something works, uh, they're very good at making it better. Uh, and so it did take time, you know, in those early days to, to get things rolling. But uh, the J League has had now, you know, 27 years of experience. And now uh, it's the J League that's teaching other countries how to improve their leagues and how, how to improve on the business aspect and the grassroots aspect. And uh, it's, that's, that's what the cycle has looked like. Mm, okay, all right, quite interesting. Yep. Right? Mm -hmm. mm. Of course, uh, Dan, as you mentioned, you know, Dragan Stochkovic, uh, one of the few big names to arrive. You also had players like Pierre Lebaski, Dunga, and also Arsene Wenger, you know, had a managerial sting with Nagoya Grampus 8. What was the pulling factor that brought these stars to try their luck in, in Japan at that time? 
I think that I mean, one, there was a lot, obviously a lot of money going into drawing these players. Uh, but more than that, there was a, a lot of commercial opportunity uh, for, for famous players who, who could succeed in Japan. This was in the early 90s. The, the, the bubble economy is still kind of going. Um, if you look like all of the American celebrities and movie stars and uh, foreign athletes who were doing commercials for anything Japanese at the time, uh, I was looking through the 1988 Kirin Cup program and on the back is an ad, I think it's a Mitsubishi VCR ad, and it's Madonna, just advertising mm -hmm. for Mitsubishi. So, so this, was, uh, th this was what foreign stars could look forward to. They, they would be treated like gods. The fans would adore them. Uh, they would be the top billed players. And they would have, uh, even after they left Japan, they would always have that association with Japan. Uh, a musician uh, whose name I forget, he once said in an article or in an, an interview that he did, once you get big in Japan, when, when, once you sell out, like, sell out a concert hall in Japan, you always have an audience to come back to. And so I, I think that there is an appeal for these players in these early days. Well, they think, well, if I can be big in Japan, then I'll always be able to, you know, come and, and do, do stuff and have that association. Oh, okay. All right. I think even it could be those guys that sang the song Big in Japan. Right? <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So, so, so then now uh, coming back to, okay, 10 teams completed in the first season, two of them based, uh, based in Yokohama, the Marinos and the Flu Girls. And then in 1999, both of them merged and became the Yokohama F Marinos. I mean, how did the fans from both those teams uh, react to the merger? Because it's really something uh, like unthinkable, right? If you think about Real and Atletico, or Rangers and Celtic, Liverpool and Everton, you know, the list goes on of, you know, trying to merge rivals. Yeah. Well, I think that the you have to understand the circumstances of why that merger and i don't have my my video on so i'm using I'm making bunny ears with my hands that merger uh, happened it was not a in, it was not an enthusiastic choice by both parties uh, what happened was that uh yokohama flugels was owned by ana uh, the, the the airline company, and they decided to pull out of the club. They decided to take their money and run, and they were basically bought out, or they, they agreed to just sell the shares to Marinos mm -hmm. and force a merger. And Marinos basically agreed to absorb the club, uh, which is why Marinos became F Marinos, the F being Flugels. Now, Mm -hmm. J-League fans did not like this one bit. Flugels fans, of course, did not like this one bit. So there were, there were protests. Uh, there were sit-ins at ANA headquarters, uh, angry demonstrations. Uh, Flugels, actually, their, their final game as a club was the uh, 1998 Emperor's Cup final, which took place on New Year's Day 1999 at the National Stadium. And they won. And when the JFA chairman uh, went uh, onto the podium to, to give the, the post-game speech, the entire stadium is just booing him. And mm. <clears throat> the stands are covered in banners protesting it. And uh, what happened was that the, the players and the fans got together and they formed Yokohama FC with uh, the Phoenix in the crest, and they eventually turned into a pro club, joined the J-League, uh, rose up to the first division in uh, for the 2007 season, and they're actually back in the first division this year. And, uh, you know, they, they've never really had success. Uh, uh, they got stomped in 2007. They, they set the record in futility that I think was broken a few years later by Tokushima Vortis and then Consadole Sapporo. 
Um, there is still a lot of bad blood between the two teams. They occasionally play each other in the Emperor's Cup. Um, Yokohama FC supporters, uh, they, they actually had, had this gigantic like pullover banner that just read, go fuck yourself. And I don't know. I'm sorry. I should have asked if I can swear on this. Okay, time. okay, no worries. You can always bleep it out. Um, but yeah, I know it's a it's a it's a, it's a Yokohama FC like supporter with two middle fingers and and uh, go fuck yourself. And um, that got quite a few supporters banned in the aftermath. Um, but but they do not like each other. Uh, when so when they mm-hmm. play, it is it is not a pretty sight. Um, probably the most antagonistic derby uh, among the derbies in Japan and that's saying a lot because derbies in Japan are usually for the most part pretty peaceful you know people get along but um, yeah the 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 F is always going to be sort of a sticking point and to this day there's still diehard Flugels fans out there who have a lot of uh, you know hold a big grudge against the J League and against Marinos for how that played out Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, well, there's only the two sides of the coin. One is the fans, and uh, another side is players. Uh, the only player that features in the 1993 J League season who still active is Kazuyoshi Miura, or is commonly known as Kazumiura. And uh, there's a few facts. Uh, Miura was born in February 1967, seven months after England won the 1966 FIFA World Cup, and. Uh, he also is recognized by the Guinness World Record as both the oldest players and also the oldest goal scorer in the professional football history, taking both the records from the legendary Sir Stanley Matthew, who bowed on sports at the age of 50. And Kazumiura is currently 53 years old and still going strong. Um, what is the impact of Japanese football as a whole and what, what, what are the thoughts on this timeless legend? I think that, and in fact, he plays at Yokohama FC these days, and he has since 2008, I want to say. I could have that wrong. Um, He is undoubtedly a legend. Um, He, just in how he uh, decided that, well, he didn't want to wait until finishing high school, so he dropped out of high school and moved to Brazil and started playing professionally there. Uh, then he came back and he was one of the the, the, the team, one of the players in, in Verity who, who won their first two league titles, their first and really only, uh, actually I shouldn't say that, yeah, first and only two league titles in 93 and 94. And what he brought to that league was, was this, the, this flashiness and this arrogance that Japanese players didn't really have. Uh, because it, it is, it was, and, and to an extent still is, a conservative society. And he brought this, he was something different. He was sort of a bad boy, but in a way that was socially acceptable. He was a fashion plate. Uh, he, he wore designer brands. He was on magazine covers. He did like a series of uh, nude photography. I think he, he, there was a book <laughs> done about him by, by the very famous uh, nude photographer. And so he was sort of the first in a line of very flashy players. And so you can draw a line from him to Hidetoshi Nakata, who in the late 90s played for uh, Belmare Hiratsuka, and then he went to Italy. Uh, and then to Keisuke Honda, who played for Nagoya Grampus before he went to uh, Holland, and then Russia, and then Italy, and then Mexico, and then Australia, and now Brazil. But you know th- these were players who broke the mold, and even today, uh, Kaz Kazu is still an elder statesman. Mm-hmm. You know, he's sort of we laugh. He's sort of a, a joke, but but because like <laughs> you know he's not he's only going to play two or three minutes a game, unless really? yeah I mean like he, he he his his goal his his role for Yokohama FC is to bring in sponsors and to, you know, mm-hmm. give them, you know, to sell shirts and to be on the program. And he's happy in that role. And he is still an incredible ambassador for the game, for the league, mm-hmm. uh, for Japanese football. 
And, you know, you can see that because every time he renews his contract, there's a dozen articles about him on the BBC and The Guardian and 442. And every time he, every, his birthday every year, you know, is celebrated around the world. So, you know, it's, he, he isn't an impact player today, but he's still got it. We should all be so lucky to be half, you know, to have half of his physical ability by the time we turn 53. <laughs> I don't have anywhere close to his physical ability and I'm 34. So it's like, good for him. I, we, we all wish him continued health and maybe he'll be around when he's 60. We don't know. <laughs> okay, okay, great. So uh, talking about, you know, uh, people have influenced uh, J-League and all that, like Kazoo, let's, let's move to Tom Bayer, you know, famously known uh, for his football starts at home philosophy. So what are your thoughts then on his influence uh, on Japanese football and was there any direct impact on the J-League itself? I mean, Tom Z is a friend of mine. Um, we've worked together on and off for about a decade now. And he, he's an amazing guy. Um, certainly his, all the, his TV show, his, his magazine appearances, uh, the clinics that he held. I mean, he basically discovered slash raised uh, a generation of players. Um, I think that his role in recent years He's sort of focused less on Japan and more on being a global advocate uh, for youth training and development. And uh, now you can look at the league and, and you know, you, you can say that you know, a lot of the, the veteran players, a lot of the older players, I mean, those are players who came of age because of Tom San and his, you know, his weekly TV show. And uh, he, he's a good guy. Um, certainly, unless you know him, it's, you know, you might not know about what he's done for in Japan, uh, but he, he's absolutely had an impact. Okay, All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, of course, as you mentioned, Dan, you know, um, players from overseas coming to Japan. Um, lately, we have seen, uh, you know, footballers from Southeast Asia, in particularly Thai football players coming to Japan. And of course, you know, with Tiraton, winning the J-League title last year and China Tip being considered one of the best, um, if I'm not mistaken, he was an MVP or something in the J-League for that particular season. I mean, both players have been revelation in the J-League. So do you think it's time that Japanese club may want to explore looking for talent in Southeast Asia that will help to expand their market as well in this region? Uh, China Tip was, he was in the best 11 in 2018. Oh, okay. Uh, right. So he was basically the best 11. Um, if you are nominated as sort of a candidate for the best 11, uh, then that sort of makes, means you're nominated for MVP. But he was the first Southeast Asian player uh, to reach the best 11. Mm -hmm. um, the J-League for the last seven, eight years has been uh, expanding into Southeast Asia uh, trying to find new talent, uh, setting up business deals. Uh, some of those have, have gone really well. Some of them haven't. But uh, I remember when I was at Goal.com, uh, we partnered with Sedasa Osaka, and they did a major push into Southeast Asia. We opened, uh, we opened social media channels in Indonesian, Thai, and Vietnamese, in addition to English. And uh, this was an era when you had Irfan Bakhtim uh, joining Bamfurei Kofu, and then he eventually he moved to Sapporo. Uh, you had Le Cong Vin, the, the Vietnamese star, joined Sapporo. You had a number of uh, young Vietnamese players joining uh, Mito Halihak and, and Yokohama in the second division. Uh, so the, the J-League is absolutely looking for talent across Southeast Asia. I think that uh, the sooner they ex expand from Thailand the better. Not that I think that they should stop looking at Thailand, but it would be nice to see uh, more players from Vietnam, from, you know, from Malaysia, from Indonesia uh, really succeed. Irfan, uh, bless him, uh, wasn't really cut out for the J-League, and he had uh, some poor luck with injuries and uh, some poor luck in that Kofu is in the middle of nowhere, and you know, they aren't really a club that's 
good for showing off your offensive talent. Uh, they're very much a park the bus kind of club, but at least back then and really now to some extent. Um, I think it's if Southeast Asia has good players, you know, if if they have players who aren't just good enough to sign and be on the under twenty three side or or be in the practice squad, but good enough to play week in week out like China Tip, like Puritan, uh, like Tidifan last season, you know. Once those players show up, they will be signed by Japanese clubs, especially uh, in the COVID-19 era. Uh, once we do resume, uh, I think that European, you know, European stars are going to be harder to sign. So I think that if the J-League wants to focus on promoting regionally with sort of more affordable alternatives for players, uh, Southeast Asia is probably going to be the future. Hmm, okay, that's a very interesting uh, uh, thoughts. Okay, I think you've been here for Japan for many years. Uh, is there any particular team you support in J-League? Perhaps maybe Urawa Reds or Gamba Osaka or even, just not mention about Toyota, what, uh, Nagoya Grampus? Oh God, uh, God, none of those teams ever. Uh, I, I'm, <laughs> I, I got into the league through FC Tokyo, as a matter of fact. Uh, okay. I went to my first J-League game in... May 2007 mm -hmm. uh, and watched Tokyo get stomped 3-1 by Kashima Antlers who uh, they went on to win the league that year and for the next two years after that uh, and I, I fell in love with it I was behind the goal I got a season ticket almost immediately um, mm. I, I made banners and stuff like until I until this turned into a, a career uh, and Tokyo's an interesting club. I, I think it's a tough dynamic because the J-League didn't start with a club in Tokyo. And it took six seasons for that to happen. To FC Tokyo started in the J-2 uh, when the second division started in 1999. And so the, the, the dynamic that exists is that now all of the really perennially strong clubs are outside of the capital. And FC Tokyo, and now Tokyo Verdi, formerly Verdi Kawasaki, they have to compete you know, with everything else that happens in Tokyo. We have two baseball teams, uh, thousands of live music venues, movie theaters, amusement parks, uh, and then all of the J-League teams that exist you know, outside, around, the, around Tokyo. So, Urawa, Yokohama, Kawasaki, uh, Kashiwa, Kash uh, Chiba, you know, Omiya. And so what the, the Tokyo, FC Tokyo's struggle to, to establish itself as, as a capital club, you know, that's something that I've written a lot about, tweeted a lot about over the years. And they've started to really make inroads. They actually averaged uh, 31,000 fans per game last season, which was the club record, uh, makes them, I think, one of three clubs to cross the 30,000 mark ever in, in Japan. And they, they were doing really well. And now this has happened. And we, we don't know what uh, attendance is going to look like this year, but uh, they're still the dominant capital club. And it's you know still... Uh, you know, they're still my team, even though, I, of course, I, I cover them. I cover a lot of teams in the Tokyo area, but they'll always be, you know, my first and uh, best J-League team. Mm, okay. Mm. Interesting. Actually, uh, just just to share with you something, uh, Dan, like, uh, I, I remember back many years back, there was this, uh, I can't even remember what video game was that I used to play with my neighbor. And I and I remember... Uh, there was this Japanese... eleven. Yeah, and then, well, no, I don't think so. It was winning 11, but it was even older. And, and I always remember this team, uh, JEF United. Yep, right? Jeff, and, Jeff, uh, yeah, Jeff United. And those yep. guys are from Chiba. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, and I and I like their logo. There was there was like a dog there. And, you know, and I think these guys are now not in the, not in the top flight, right? No, they have not been in the top flight since uh, 2009. Um... I miss them, which I miss them. Their stadiums, I love their stadium. Uh, it's a hall. It's like 
way out in the east uh, in the dark mm. part of Chiba but um uh, yeah they they've they've got a they've got good fans they've just um never yep. quite gotten it together and uh yeah yeah but and, it's and and those interesting colors of yellow 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 and green right so it's very yeah so that that there was one club that particularly struck me yeah okay Okay. Okay. So now coming coming back to fans, then uh, okay. So uh, you know, if one were to go and attend a J League uh, J League game in a stadium, what what's the difference? Like you know, in terms of fan culture or match day experience, someone can get you know attending a game compared to where if someone were to go to Europe and watch a game like that. Yeah. I think that if you, I mean, compare obviously it depends on which European league you're looking at, but. Um, it starts with who's in the stadium. And mm -hmm. one of the things that the, the J League has worked very hard on accomplishing is making the league a family-friendly environment. It, it's not just, you know, you, you go to a game in England and it's mostly men, some women, but a lot of men, a lot of older men, yeah, and yeah. in other countries, it's mostly men because, you know, in in Italy, in Turkey, in Serbia, you know, women are sort of afraid to go into the stadium because they're not really quite safe. Uh, mm -hmm. Here, it's totally safe. It's you know, you can bring your kid, you can bring your infant, you can bring your girlfriend, <laughs> you can bring your parents, you can bring your grandparents. Um, you can bring the whole family and everyone's going to love it. Um, the league attendance uh, is, uh, this is currently about 37.6% women. Mm, okay. Wow, that's, the, yeah, very the high peak, percentage. Hmm. The peak about 15 years ago was close to 42, around 42%. So it's dipped a little, but some clubs still have a lot of female fans. Uh, mm. Nagasaki has 51% women. A lot of J1 clubs are, are over 40. Uh, actually, Nagoya has the, some of the fewest female fans in the league. They're at 27.5. Uh, mm. I know all this. I'm, I'm cheating because they actually, the league actually has an annual fan survey where they cover all the demographics, um, things like travel time, budgets, how many games fans are going to. And so, like, I, it's it's fascinating because you can get these really detailed breakdowns of, of what does a J League fan look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the average age is about uh, forty three across the league. You know, some teams skew older. Uh, Sapporo is about forty six. Some teams skew younger. Uh, let me scroll down. Where is it? You, yeah, Yuki is like forty one. Kagoshima is about forty. Uh, Yokohama F. Marinos are at 39 and a half. Mm. So, you know, it's a very friendly environment. The uh, supporter groups are very passionate. And, and what they've sort of done, I talked about how JSL support sounded back in the 70s and 80s. They sort of took that structure, but made it a bit more freewheeling, like you see in Europe, where it's like, you know, you've got a capo or a call leader. And it's sort of a loosely organized group of supporters, but everyone's basically following the leader. And chants can change. And, and you have a lot of songs that are inspired by what fans in Brazil and Argentina and England sing, but also based on Japanese pop songs. Uh, you go around the stadium and there's food stalls, there's events. Uh, some clubs really get into it with really interesting like theme theme days and it's stuff that it's not like in you know in England you can't have a theme day nobody will take you seriously <laughs> uh, people because people go to the pub until 15 minutes before kickoff and then they rock mm -hmm. up and then they go to their seat um, here you get to the game three hours before kickoff because oh. you know you you want to you know you're getting food, you're getting beer, you're talking with friends, you're lining up to buy whatever the new merch is. You want to mm -hmm. take a picture with the mascot. Like, it is this whole culture where, you know, the, 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 the culture is as fascinating as the game itself because it, it's something that 
is accessible to anyone. You know, you don't have to speak the language to go to the stadium and you know enjoy yourself. Mm. Mm. Wow. Okay. I think we're gonna learn a lot from the Japanese culture as well. Yeah. Uh, talking about lessons, uh, I think this reminds me of TPS, the Toyota production system, 5S, Jidoka, uh, and uh, all this kind of production system. Uh, a lot of people learn, or a lot of factories in Asia or even the world learns from uh, Japan and to make help their production more efficiency and, uh, and the outcoming of the better quality. What do you think? Uh, what, what, are, what are other leagues from Asia especially can learn from the J-League in terms of the progress of, of whole, if you, if you don't mind sharing with us? I think that you look at how the J-League has invested in, in its grassroots and in the, the mid-90s when the, the new league smell uh, sort of rubbed off and, and they, they realized, well, we can't just be a new league forever. We have to establish a vision. And that's what they did with, with the 100-year plan uh, or 100-year vision, as, as some call it. Uh, and that was basically a roadmap saying, well, our goal is we want kids playing on grass surfaces. We want you know sports clubs to become sports clubs, not just for football, but for other sports. We want professional clubs in every area of Japan. And so they worked on uh, helping clubs transition from amateur to pro. Uh, they established the club license system, which is a way for clubs that want to be in the J-League to work their way up. And it, it's basically getting, club, getting clubs that want to become J-League clubs to avoid you know, putting themselves in debt or spending a ton of money to get admitted and then they they flop out and there's a financial disaster so clubs have to establish academies get the right number of staff be able to follow afc procedures uh you know earn profit uh attract you know the the minimum number of fans per game like there, there are these steps that can be taken and all of the you know this it's all sort of the same cycle uh, in different forms, but that extends to how the youth academies are set up and how the league supports that and you know, creates opportunities for youth teams to go and participate in overseas tournaments, for example. Um, you look at the relationship between sponsors and clubs look at the relationship between clubs and communities like these these are all things that the j league maintains uh and encourages and sometimes enforces and it, it is a holistic system where everyone's working to help each other and i i think that you can contrast that with say the the chinese super league model which is well this company owns a club, they want to be the best in the world, so they're gonna spend 200 million euros to bring in some stars from Europe. Well, okay, they've won the Super, they've won the Super League, they've won the Champions League, but what's after that? J-League, the, the J-League is, is looking towards the future, is looking, you know, they're looking at 100 years from now, in 2093, uh, trying to get every prefecture a pro club Will they hit it? Will they hit that mark? I don't know, but uh, I think that there's already 37, 38 of the 47 prefectures have J-League clubs, so they're getting close. Um, you know, you, you can look at what any club is doing, and I think there's a lesson for Southeast Asian clubs and, and, and for, for Asian clubs and leagues to, to, to study and aspire to attain. Right, right. Surely this, uh, I mean, for me personally, I think, uh, you know, when I always talk about um, benchmark of football in Asia, I always look at Japan because of how much they've progressed, uh, not just their club, but also the national team as well, you know, over the years in the World Cup, whereby, you know, now that Japan is capable to compete with uh, European nations, South American nations, where in the past it's always considered like a foregone conclusion, but now, you know, things have changed a lot over the years. Um, any other question, guys? 
No, uh, yeah, uh, I mean, nothing, not, nothing more from me. I think uh, Dan, uh, you know, thanks, thanks a lot for, for all your insights, uh, you know, providing to us today. Yeah, yeah me too, Dan. So much for your insight and a lot of uh, information we learned from you today as well. Uh, no problem. It, it, it's honestly one of the cool parts of doing what I do is that it's, I, I love being able to, to, to share people, to, to share this information and to, to show people at the, the league the, what the J League has done. Uh, it's really cool. It's an amazing league. And I think that um, a lot of people, you know, people look at European leagues, they, they, they want to watch the Premier League or, or La Liga or the Champions League. And it's like, yeah, you could, but you're not going to have as much fun. <laughs> and I think that I hope that, you know, everyone listening one day, you know, when, when we can all travel again, when, when we can all go outside again, you know, mm -hmm. hope, hopefully uh, you'll be able to see, to watch the J League and hopefully uh, you'll be able to, to come and see it because it, it really is um, something special. I think it's one of the best all around, in terms of all around experience, I think it's one of the best leagues in the world. Mm, okay, definitely. This is something I would say. Probably in the pipeline, the Bola Bola show, making a trip to Japan to watch uh, J League football fixture. <laughs> yeah, as what as what Dan said, you know, you can bring your infant all the way to your grandfather, so something, yeah. <laughs> something very interesting. Yep, yep. All right. Yep. Okay. Um, with that said and done, uh, once thank you so much, Dan, for taking your time to you know be with us in this show. Uh, hopefully we can have uh, some other session as well, you know, some other topics related to Japanese football. We definitely would love you to come on board and share us your, your knowledge on that. Uh, okay, Elwin, anything? Uh, okay, uh, just, I mean, thank you again, Dan. And, and by the way, guys, uh, just now about that song, Big in Japan, it's by Alpha Wheel. So you guys can go and have a listen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right, Bala? That's it from me, Steven. Thanks for once again. Thanks for Dan for your time, and uh, yeah. hope to see you again. Have a good, wonderful day. Oh. All right, that's about it for this show. Thank you so much. <laughs>